0: Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us today. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us today. This is called... In the church calendar, the season of Advent, the time leading up to Christmas, and Advent means coming, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus to earth 2,000 years ago, where we anticipate the second coming of Jesus in glory whenever that will be, but we pray and sing come today, don't we? Isn't that interesting? He came, he will come, but we're praying, Lord, come now. Come now. And one of the most important names that Jesus the Messiah is given prophetically is that he's called Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Not one day, hopefully, just, but now, truthfully, experientially. For you, for me, for each person. Even in those clubs. Amen? God with us. God with you when you go in there. Let's look at where it started 2,000 years ago. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, "'Greetings, favored woman.'" The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. So just quickly three things there. The angel's message from God to Mary, this amazing, unique, one-off thing in history. The, the angel's message was, the Lord is with you. Now, you would maybe think, oh, that's comforting and reassuring. But her reaction is, she's confused and disturbed. So let's, in passing, just note that that the presence of God with us does not mean we just have a life of comfort, ease and peace. The Lord's presence with us will cause, at times, at least, some confusion and disturbance, And that does not mean that God has left you if you feel like that. There may be all sorts of reasons for your confusion and disturbance. Let me add. But one of them might be that the Lord is with you and me and us to shake us up out of our sleep, to wake us up for something new, to jolt us into action where we have grown cozy and lazy or whatever. Confused and disturbed. Check your own spirit this morning. How do you feel? Do you really know, not just believe vaguely, but do you know the Lord is with you? Do you feel in any sense disturbed by that, in, 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 a, in a positive sense disturbed, propelled by it, jolted by it? But then the angel says to her, of course, Mary. Mary. Don't be afraid. And many times in Scripture when God appears to someone, guess what their reaction is? If God appears to you, you're going to be afraid. It's the right sort of reaction to a holy God from an unholy person. Fear, awe, and the angel God himself says to person after person in the scriptures, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid. God is with you. Now this is one of many, many examples. This this, uh, interaction, if you like, between God and an individual, in this case Mary, is a, a good example of how we can approach the whole of the Bible, the Scriptures. We're here today, not just on a, on a Sunday in Advent, but we're finishing this sh- short four-week series on the Bible. And um, so today we're looking, in some ways, at that title that's on the screen there, at what the Bible has to tell us and show us about God with us. God with us, not just back then, but now, like we've sung about and pray for. But this is a good example of how Scripture is put together, it seems to me. So, Neil, if we could put the next slide up. You see, if we look at this little diagram, it's three concentric circles. And right at the middle of it, it's labeled person because here we start with and this seems to be the way that, that that god has revealed himself progressively from from early days right through to supremely his revelation through jesus that he that he interacts with an individual and it's their story it's how god speaks to him works in Abraham, and Moses, and Ruth, and Esther, and Deborah, and Daniel, and Gideon, and, and so on, right through the Scriptures. But each of those individuals were not in just in their own little world. They were part of something bigger, the next circle around them. They were part of the people of God, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, or if you like now in the New Testament, and for us it's the church church. The body of Christ you see you you and I can put ourselves not that we're in the pages of Scripture but we're in the heart of God nonetheless and we can put ourselves in that inner inner circle and say well how is God dealing with me what's he doing in my life but whatever it is it's only part of something even bigger we are part of the people of God and, and even then it doesn't stop. So we have beyond that, we have the eternal sovereign plan of God, which will be worked out by God's love and power. No matter what I as an individual do or no matter what the people of God corporately do. Now we are called to obedience and faithfulness, but guess what? If you choose to walk away from God, it doesn't change his eternal plan one little bit. It just changes your life negatively. But you see, I'm comforted and challenged at the same time by this, that my life is part of something bigger to be part of you and for us to be part of the worldwide body of Christ but even that is just part of the overarching eternal sovereign plan of God. Now let's see if this works out. Remember what the angel has just said to Mary. Let's read the next verses straight after that. You will conceive and give birth to a son And you will call him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Can you see this interaction with an individual, Mary? Starts with her life, she's going to have miraculously have a, a baby, have a son. But this is still part of something that she may not understand yet at all. But the angel speaks into being prophetically that this son will reign over Israel. There's the people of God, and beyond that, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, will never ever. Ever end. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? The person, the people, the plan. Now, if you're wondering, well, what is this plan all about? Let's take a quick glimpse because later on in the New Testament, the apostle Paul was given amazing revelation about the plan of God. So let's look at it in Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Look out for the word plan. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan. Mysterious, not meaning weird and strange, just it's been hidden until now, like something behind a curtain, and now the curtains are pulled to one side, and we are able to take a glimpse of it. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan at the right time He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Can we say amen to that? You and I may not fully understand that because it is still kind of mysterious, isn't it? But can we see the bigger picture or something of the bigger picture? Let's get stuck into Christ deeply, intimately, knowing God with us now because we're part of this, if we do. We're part of this eternal plan. We're part of something that starts now in in flesh and blood and in living, but it transcends dying even and goes through eternity forever and ever. His kingdom will never end. And you and I, all of us, are called to be part of it. Come into the kingdom. Come, come, come. That's the invitation. Be part of this plan. This plan that God has had from before the foundation of the world. That he's brought through Christ dying on the cross and rising again for us. And now pouring out his spirit that we can be united with Christ. So that we are part of his plan. Come into it. Always God has wanted to dwell with his people. Always. He dwelt, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden until sin broke that down. But even then, with the children of Israel through the Old Testament, he came and allowed them to to approach him. And he dwelt in a physical place then. His dwelling was with his people the people of Israel, who were called to be a blessing in order that all the families of the world, every, every nation, not just the, the Jews, every nation would be blessed because of how God revealed himself as faithful and kind and good and rescuing. But he dwelt, God himself dwelt in a physical place. He dwelt in the tabernacle, this, this tent structure that was, that was made while they were still traveling through the, the wilderness. And eventually he dwelt in a temple that was built in Jerusalem. He dwelt there. You had to come to the temple to find God, as it were. So God with us meant I go to God there. And and within the tabernacle and then the temple, there was this amazing object called the Ark of the Covenant. And within it were the, the tablets of stone, written on by God, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God is described as dwelling between the cherubim on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. God on a box, as it were. Now, of course, God is is omnipresent. He's, He's everywhere, but he chose to come... Sort of on top of that, if you like. I mean, literally on top of. And that's where the people could come to meet with God. Now, this caused problems at times. Just let, let's look at a uh, quickly at an example in the Old Testament of, of, a, of a first of all, a problem and then a solution. <laughs> um, this Ark of the Covenant had been. Uh, uh, It was moved around from place to place before the temple was built. This is in the time of King David. There was no temple then. It was his son Solomon who built the first temple. But the ark has even been captured in times gone by by the Philistines. The presence of God, God with us, became a problem to them because they weren't worshipping God. And so they quickly handed it back. It was causing them problems. And at this stage, look, David, King David, decides to do this. Well, actually, sorry, he decides to move it to Jerusalem. And I haven't got the story up there on, on the board, and it's a tricky one, because as it's being moved on a cart, being, being led along on a cart to Jerusalem, the, um, the helpers, if you like, uh, and guardians are under strict instructions from God how to handle it, or rather how not to handle it, literally, not to touch it. And the oxen stumble, and the cart rocks, and a man called Uzzah thinks, oh no, the, the ark is going to fall off the, off the cart. And he puts his hand out to steady the ark, and you think, that's, that's good of him. But he's under strict instructions not to do that, and he is struck down, dead on the spot. And David, who is wanting the ark to be brought to Jerusalem to to be a place of, of worship and praise and rejoicing, is mortified. And actually it says he's angry with God. Why have you done this, God? Do you ever get angry with God? Stamp your foot? Why have you done this? Or why haven't you done this? David did, and did this. So did David, in like, a peak of anger, decided not to move the Ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. I like Obed-Edom. He's a great guy. You can read about him more if you look him up carefully. Uh, He took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The Ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So this ark, where the presence of God is in a physical way being manifested... Powerful, in other words, not to be trifled with, not to be treated lightly or wrongly. This ark, instead of being brought to the city of Jerusalem, is put in someone's front room. Obed-Edom's house. And for three months, can you imagine telling the children all that time, you can look but don't touch. It's like having Christmas presents there wrapped up and And no, not yet, no. But do you see what it brings? You see what the presence of God brings? Absolute blessing. A curse to those who disobey and and mock and blaspheme, actually. They've seen that, the Philistines. Uzzah to his cost. But Obed-Edom, I mean, at the end of it, he must have been nervous at the beginning. King David says, look, we're going to park the ark here in your front room. Uh, really? Okay, he can't say no to the king. But by the end of three months, now we're going to take it away from him. No, no, He can't say. Three months of everything in his household, his, his wife, his children, his servants, his cattle, everything to do with him and his household is blessed and blessed. And blessed because of the presence of God. Because of God with them. God with them. That's the Old Testament model. God limited, if you like, to a physical place. And you had to get to that place or be in, in the same environment. But when we come to the New Testament, it's different. The physical precedes the spiritual. The the experience now since Christ is that the Holy Spirit is given. That's why we sing, sing what we sang. That's why I read it out again, said it again at the beginning of this talk. Come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us today. It is the Spirit of Jesus who we are told comes to live within each and every believer, those who trust in Christ as their Savior alone. He comes to live and brings the presence of God to bless us and our household, even though at times it means, like Mary, we can be disturbed and confused. So let's look at the New Testament. And within three chapters of each other in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul spells out, what now the temple of God is. (laughs) You know, if the temple was the place where God's presence was situated, now Paul says to these Gentile believers who don't have this background of the temple, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Your body... He's talking to Greeks, and Greek mentality, philosophy, and lifestyle was that they separated the, the, the physical things from the so-called spiritual things. The, the flesh from the spirit were, were separate in their minds, therefore, it, and to them the flesh, the body, was, was something uh, sort of a bit dirty and nasty and unclean, whereas the spirit separate from that was, was fine. And because of that, the church coming out of that mentality were living, some of them at least, were living in that way, that they were actually living, for example, in immorality and still thinking they could walk with God. And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't do that. There is no such thing as a divide between what you do with your body and what you do with your spirit. You're all whole people, and the Holy Spirit has come to live in you, in your body. And that's why the New Testament, by the way, uh, both Paul and the Apostle John, they're at pains to say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's come physically, in the body, and every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh You see how it cuts across the culture and mentality of of, of their day. Like the kingdom of God and Jesus' message always cuts across the culture of every day, including our own today, in many ways. But in their day, it was about this flesh thing. Jesus has come in the flesh. It matters what you do with your flesh. Honor God with your body because your body, now, physically, your body, each of you, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God is present and lives. Wow. But it's even bigger than that. I mean, that's important enough, isn't it? We ought to go away and just think, oh, what do I do with my body you know, my mind, my eyes, my hands, my feet, my energy, my. T- what am I doing to honor God with my body? And what am I doing that might dishonor God with my body? So cut out that and give ourselves. And that's why. And Paul's like really practical. He says, offer to God the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Offer your hands, offer your time, offer your thoughts, offer what you see, what you read, what you do, who you speak to, your tongue. Every, Offer them to God. Don't just try and keep yourself squeaky clean. Be positive about offering the parts of your body as instruments for the kingdom. But you know what? It's not even doesn't even stop there. Look at the second quote um, back in chapter three. He says, "Don't you realize?" And in the Greek, it's plural here. "Don't you re- you is plural." "Don't you realize that all of you together?" That's why in the English translation, it's put the word "together" there. All of you together. Because our word "you" could be one person or lots of people. Don't you, all of you, realise that all of you together are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. It's plural. Now, I don't want to try and define or or cut where the Spirit of God is in me as opposed to in us. I just am amazed that it's both. So it's the body, and it's the body. My body, your body, the body of Christ. That is where God dwells now. That is why we need to be part of the body of Christ. That is why it's not good enough to sit at home just watching this on the TV if you're able to be here. That is why it's important to be in relationship with brothers and sisters. That is why you cannot be a Christian on your own. Unless you're arrested and put in solitary confinement, I think God makes an exception there. You can have your own cell group then, can't you? (laughs) So is God with me? Is God with you? Can you put yourself, do you remember that diagram earlier? Can you put yourself in the inner circle. It's not a bullseye. It's not where people are going to throw darts at you. <laughs> they might. Can you put yourself there in faith, in reality? Or do you write yourself off? Or do you think, I've never come into that. I've never thought of myself like that. I read, I read this book if I read it at all and I think of it as a story from long ago. Or Jesus with his disciples. Or no, it's now. It's now. Put yourself there now. And I'll just finish with these couple more scriptures. You see, in Hebrews, there's a lovely theme in, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament where, where Jesus is, is taught about as the supreme supreme being, absolutely the, the, the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself to us. But then it's not just that this great high priest is, is so far removed from us, far, far from it, quite the reverse. It's like, and this high priest was just like you. He came in flesh and blood. And for example, there's loads of references there, but this, here's one at the top. Since this is talking about Jesus, of course, Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. There is a very real area of God being with us. The area of pain, the area of difficulty, of suffering testing testing in the new testament word is the same word as testing trials or temptations there are not three greek words it's one word it's interesting that and so i tend to think that testing is the best word for it generally and sometimes that testing comes through what's happening inside me if you like the temptations that that i I battle with in my mind that's a temptation and sometimes it comes from outside of me as a challenge, opposition, or difficulty in life, and that's a trial. But there are all types of testing. Will I trust God or won't I? Will, I? will I only decide to follow God when life is easy? Or will I know God with me when there's a real challenge or it gets hard? Will I only Acknowledge God and want to be a disciple if he meets my conditions or am I prepared to lay down my rights and meet his conditions? Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house upon the rock and when the storm came, you know this song, (laughs) <laughs> the rains came down. It's not just a little children's song. It's a real life description. The storm will come to you and me at some point. And for some people, it seems to come quite regularly. Others just occasionally. But the storm or storms will definitely come. So I was so struck by that 18 months ago, that, that verse in the Sermon on the Mount. I thought, Lord, do I? whoever hears these words of mine, I thought, do I even really take seriously your words? Now, I, I, I do. I take the, the Word of God very seriously. But I, I, it struck me about the words of Jesus. And for, for 18 months now, I've been doing nothing else in my own personal devotions but looking at all the words of Jesus not trying to put them on a higher plane to other words of god in the scriptures but i'm certainly not trying to put them on a lower plane either i've been through mark's gospel i'm in john chapter 18 now it's been powerful and convicting i've just read jesus faced with his Arrest, and Peter takes out his sword and slices off the ear of the high priest's slave, like you do. And Jesus rebukes him, no, no violence, this is not my kingdom. And he says this, shall I not drink the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? You see, he could have avoided it, as you know. He could have avoided the cross, the pain, the suffering. But the Father had given him this cup to drink from, and he was prepared, committed to drinking it fully, to the last dregs of it, that our salvation might be accomplished, so that by the time... Of his hours on the cross were coming to end he could cry out in a loud voice it is finished it's accomplished i've done it i've drunk from that cup of suffering i have borne their sins in my body they can be free to go now they can be reconciled to the father for the joy set before him he endured the pain And, yep, never mind the one we've just missed. Uh, we'll, go to, we'll finish with this, honestly. I, l- I love this scripture, finally, in uh, later on, in, or a bit later on, in Hebrews. And I've underlined three ways in which we can respond. Always. Not just today, though, including today. This high priest, talking of Jesus again, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. <laughs> Hallelujah. He understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, what should our response be? Threefold. Let us, firstly, come boldly. Do not disqualify yourself. Do not think that you're too dirty or unholy or distant or anything come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will, first of all, receive mercy because we all need to be forgiven by God. We will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Mercy is dealing with our past sin and unholiness. Mercy, you've forgiven me. Thank you, Lord. Grace is what God pours out upon us beyond that his love his presence his anointing his peace his joy the fellowship of being part of the body of christ and many other blessings beside grace that we do not deserve and can never earn come boldly receive mercy find grace god is with us amen